range anxiety. It's Friday morning here in overcast and rainy Adelaide. We haven't had much of a summer here yet, really, and uh, we're doing a drive along this morning. I'm in the Tesla Model 3 SR Plus, and so it's going to be a little bit noisy, but who cares? You get to hear my voice, and that's that. 30 years of automotive tuning experience in 30 minutes, coming at you a couple of times a week. Thank you to the Vapors and their great intro track, Turning Japanese. Isn't it a good thing? I'll ask the Tesla Tesla, is it a good thing? Yes. It just engaged autopilot for me so I can talk to you while I'm driving. Great feedback this week. Met a few old friends from overseas that have said, hey Martin, I met you in 2000 or 2001 and I've been listening to the Epicasts and I love them and that's really good. All sort of goes back to an old uh, drag meet called Drag Combat that was on at Willowbank Raceway in Queensland. And there were GDRs, pretty much, from all around the world there, all running some pretty crazy times. But obviously the highlight of that whole thing was uh, the HKS car, which was an amazing device. That R32, I remember that. Not only was it running sevens, pretty much out of the box there, it would also return up the return road after the strip with the rear tyres on fire doing burnouts for the crowds. They kind of stamped their authority all over the Aussies and the Kiwis and everybody else that rocked up with their GDRs. It was, it was a pretty amazing kind of meeting and yeah, that, that will sort of stay etched in my mind probably forever as one of the most impressive things I've ever seen an internal combustion car do and that was the HKS R32 GDR. Have a look at this. It's the middle of summer and it's cold and it's raining. Absolutely bizarre. That lockdown uh, without all the climate changing gases going into the atmosphere really must have helped us. Couple of pet peeves this morning. Um, you know, Australia has been super, super lucky or organised, whatever you want to call it, with this whole COVID thing. We aren't suffering like our American cousins are with massive infections and massive deaths. I mean, a lot of that is probably due to the fact that pretty much no one lives here in comparison and we all sort of stay away from each other anyway because we have so much space in this country to do the things that we need to do on a, on a daily basis. So yeah, we've been very lucky, but my goodness, hasn't it absolutely wreaked havoc on our automotive business? I mean, now... Even in January 2021, getting supply of anything to do with cars is an absolute disaster. You see, what happened is that in March and April and May, when all the lockdowns were enforced and, and it was going to be the end of the world, people panicked, companies panicked and went back to minimal staff loading. There was no one at work to make anything. And then the government stepped in with all this stimulus money and people couldn't travel. You know, uh, they couldn't go anywhere or do anything. So what was the, the, the logical thing uh, they did? Uh, spend money on their cars. So manufacturing of all of these bits we need for the cars shrunk amazingly. And then demand went through the roof. And a lot of companies are, are playing catch up still now. So in January 2021, I have to wait three or four months for a basic component. Like, for example, a, a a cat back exhaust for a Mustang and a Mustang's a very popular tuner car even here in Australia three or four months 
you know, it's apps from my Australian suppliers and the Chinese suppliers really aren't any better because, you know, there's still containers and wharves and things that need to happen. So, yeah, the whole thing's an absolute mess at the moment and people aren't being very patient with the whole thing either. I mean, we now have an entitled generation that, that like being paid double to stay at home and they want everything now. They want, you know, they're bored. They, they want to modify their cars. I suppose I can't blame them, but please understand you know, there's no one back at work or not enough people back at work to make the stuff that you want. So lead times and delays are part of what they like to call the new normal. I don't call it normal at all. I call it a massive pain in the ass. Well, let's move on from that. As you would see, I played the Vapors turning Japanese uh, as my intro this morning. Great bunch of Aussies, I think they were lot of fun um, but it brings me back to a time people have been asking me and been requesting Martin we, we want you to talk about Japan more we want you to talk about what went on over there and what you did there because yeah I was one of I wasn't the earliest adopter by any means but I was one of the first I suppose mainstream Aussies that went there to investigate the car scene back in 1998 this of course was back in a time oh look it's raining heavily now this is just unheard of this time of the year in Adelaide. But hey, you know, we do live in the driest state, in the driest continent in the entire world. So guess what? I'll take it. Means I'll probably have to wash the car when I get to work, but who cares? It's good. It's a good thing. All right, so 1998, my first trip to Japan. Amazing times. I actually hooked it up with a trip that I was doing to SEMA as well in Las Vegas. So there were some flights involved. Ooh, were there really? I mean, it was Adelaide, Sydney, which is an hour and a half, two hours. Sydney, Tokyo, which is like nine and a half hours. Overnight stay at Narita. Those of you that have been to Japan would know that wonderful Narita airport. And then from Narita to Las Vegas, which took oh, 14 hours or something. So there was a lot of flying just to get to America. And we were sort of buggered when we got there, but we did the SEMA thing for four or five days. Uh, myself and my mate Mark Tilbrook, who I mentioned on this Epicast from time to time. Hello, Mark, if you're listening. They were great days. We had a lot of fun. Uh, we got invited out by some locals in Las Vegas and we went to a moose party. Yeah, that's right, to all my Aussie listeners. We might chuck a kangaroo on the barbie. These guys chucked a moose, and girls chucked a moose on the barbie. Interesting and crazy stuff. So we were pretty, uh, I suppose, worn out would be the word to use by the time we got back to Tokyo. Big, long flight. And then we caught, without knowing a word of the lingo, and there was very little English in Japan back then, the car scene was strong as hell, but the, the tourist scene was a little bit on the shaky side. So we got back to Narita, we flew back in there and had to catch a Shinkansen bullet train to make our way down to Osaka, which is where all the action was going to happen for us here in Osaka. So we muddled around and begged and pleaded with locals. There was some of them that knew like one or two words of English and we managed to buy our tickets on the Shinkansen to get to Osaka and we found a nice empty carriage and we got on it and promptly got kicked straight off. See, we didn't understand that a reserved carriage was kind of like a business class thing 
and you needed a special ticket to get on it. All I remember is the conductor coming up to us and saying in his best English, Hiroshima, off, off. So he kicked us off at the next stop and luckily we were able to get back into a non-reserved uh, carriage and continue our journey. Yeah, pretty heady times. I think what made the whole thing even more frightening, particularly for the poor Japanese, is that I, not only was I a larger lad at the time, large and in charge, I was also sporting a orange mohawk hairdo, which was supposed to have been blonde, but I bleached it myself and I really didn't bleach it that well. So yeah, I ended up with this orange head. It was a bit, bit of a frightening thing, even for me when I looked in the mirror. So we got into Osaka and we met our hosts there, a couple of expat Aussies uh, that were traveled on and off. One actually lived there. And the whole thing was he was going to show us around the car scene there in exchange for us helping him out a little bit at work um, at a wrecking yard in Amagasaki, which is a little sort of industrial area right next to a love hotel. Yeah, we'll get onto the love hotels in a minute. <laughs> strange place in the early days and it was owned by a couple of Japanese locals the wrecking yard but it was full of um, expat sort of workers there was only the one Aussie that, that we were working with but there was uh, Pakistanis uh, Thais and the wrecking yard because they were making obviously a lot of money out of people going in there and half cutting all of the cars that the Japanese were throwing in the bin at the time they would make a lot of money out of it, so they would supply an apartment or an apato locally, which was quite close to the yard itself. This was no thing of beauty. And this was in the middle of, oh, I reckon it was winter the first time we got there. That had lined up with uh, late October, early November in the Northern Hemisphere. And it was cold and it was wet and it was slushy. And the conditions in this, um, wrecking yard or dismantling yard for my American listeners were absolutely appalling there was no real safety there was no anything it was proper cowboy central and you know a, a local worker here in Australia with all of our OH&S and safety requirements and inductions wouldn't go near a place like this these days they just wouldn't want to know at all what the hell was going on would they Tesla no, so even the car answers me. It was um, it was a wild west in the east, and it was quite funny. But we didn't have, we didn't spend too much time looking at the terrible conditions that we had to work in because if you were into cars, this place was just a wonderland. This was a time when the Japanese economy was strong, and people owned cars till they were out of sharken or their registration, and as they got older. They got more and more expensive to register to the point where it just wasn't worth keeping them anymore. So not only was the yard full of really cool shit, like super cool cars, every morning or most mornings, they'd be lined up outside, dumped too. I remember seeing a mint condition S13 there. Sure, it was only a, a, a Nissan Silvera S13. Sure, it was only a CA18 but it was in really, really, really nice nick. It was a uh, K's, which means it's a turbo, obviously. There were three, I think. There was J's, Q's, and K's. J 
jokers, queens and kings for those that don't know. So there you go. Um, and this thing was stuffed full of televisions, uh, domestic appliances, all stuffed in what used to be at one stage a pristine interior ready for scrapping. Yep. So we looked at it and thought, this is just incredible. Um, and the guys I was with said, nah, there's no way this is being scrapped. We're going to take this back and comply it. And sure enough, that one ended up being put in a container hole. But once I'd get into the wrecking yard, if we didn't want to buy them whole and put them in a container, we would cut them in half and you'd bring in like the front cut or a rear cut, mainly the front cups. It had ECUs, engines, dashboards, wiring looms and all of that cool stuff in it. If there's a differential to be taken or drive shafts to save space, you normally wouldn't take the whole rear end. You'd probably take the tail lights and stuff like that. Anything that was a consumable that would be used in an accident. And then what would happen from there is it would go into the crushing pile and these cars would get stacked on top of each other and eventually the operator during the day was driving this big horrible thing. It looked like we used to call it the Tyrannosaurus Rex or the Pterodactyl. It was a big machine and it had claws and arms and stuff and it would just literally tear the cars apart like they were made from tissue paper. It would absolutely destroy them and it was really, really, really a thing to behold. Uh, those of you that subscribe to or purchase my hard-tuned imports videos from the time would be fully aware of this device, this beast. And yeah, it was like dangerous. There were bolts flying out of things as they were ripped apart. They were flying out like bullets and spraying across the yard. And you'd be ducking and weaving all of the time, keeping one eye on this machine, tearing things apart. And in the other hand, on the, the other eye would be ripping boost controllers out of cars, taking blow-off valves off, getting aftermarket intercoolers. You see, back in the day, back then, the Japanese threw all that stuff out. Notably, they don't do that anymore. They tend to keep that and sell that through their, you know, up garage or, or parts dealers there. But back in the day, it was all going in the scrap bin and it most certainly did. And it was just quite something else. So what did we do? after a hard day's work for entertainment. Well, I, you know, being a, a more of a likely lad, would go past the uh, beer vending machines. Yep, they had beer on tap there up until about 11 p.m. at the time, I reckon, the beer vending machine stayed on. And we would go and get a beer and decide what we're gonna do for the night. Now, there was very little publicized street racing or wangan or anything that, you heard of like that back then but there was a place called um nanko manami or nanko fishing village i think it was where you'd go down it was on the industrial part of the wharves and you'd go down there to chuck a rod in god knows what you'd catch there's trucks and containers and crap like that everywhere but it was the fishing park or fishing village and apparently that's where the younger generation the dorifto boys would go crazy after hours and so our host at the time decided to take us down there. Now, what would you do for a car? I mean, you don't want to rock up in a minibus. You'd look like an idiot. You had to kind of try and fit in because from time to time, option video and people like that would actually go down there and film the shenanigans going on. 
So, of course, we'd go out the front of the yard, see what had been dumped already that night at about 10pm. And it'd always be a nice Sylvia or R32 or R33 out the front, dumped, ready for the scrapper. We'd go open the yard, get some uh, fuel that was drained out of the cars before they went through the crushing machine so they didn't explode. Put some fuel in the tanks of these things. <coughs> Find a number plate or two they didn't even have to match from some poor individual out the front of the love hotel that was in there with his mistress or partner of the night having some fun put them on the car load up the car with Aussie idiots and head out to Nanko Manami for a little bit of a drift session the Aussie boys I was with at the time yep they could drive one of them better than the other so down we go I'd be full of video cameras and bravado We'd go down and we'd set up video cameras in cars on tripods and we'd do all sorts of things and we would spend the night, I mean the entire night, till about 4am in the morning drifting and having a look at the talents of some of these Jap guys in what were essentially Australian style pro level cars now, these were their street cars and these guys were serious and there was some good stuff, there were drift jays at 80s, drift Supras, Drift, uh, FC, RX-7s, tons of Nissans, as you can imagine, GDRs in real-wheel drive only. And these guys would go absolutely mental on full lock, top of fourth gear, full sideways, weaving in and out of, like, parked truck trailers, like Class 2 semi-trailers if you're an American, like craziness no one really ever came unstuck but it was kind of the thin edge of the wedge you know what these guys were doing was dangerous as get out but to us you know it was like we just discovered fire it was just incredible and we couldn't get enough of it so at about 4am we would head back get about two hours three hours of shut eye if we could Thankfully, the Japanese aren't really, or in this part of the world that we're in, aren't, weren't really early risers. So, you know, you could stagger into work. At 9am, get a couple of Royal Milk Teas out of the vending machine and Brad Pitt coffees. He was selling a brand. Brad Pitt was selling Roots at the time, which was probably quite a thing. And stagger into the wrecking yard again and rinse, repeat for the next day. And we would do this for about a week. Occasionally we'd phone home because the mobile network there was, <clears throat> was shit at the time. It was, well it was, well it was if you had an Aussie phone. There was not really no such thing as roaming. There was just the Docomo, I think it was, local network with their <clears throat> crazy little flip phones of a type that we never really saw in Australia. They worked everywhere in tunnels, on trains. And, you know, we, we just had to use a pay phone. So we'd ring home occasionally and rinse, repeat, keep going. We'd do this for days. And on the weekends when the wrecking yard was shut, we'd go to visit some shops or visit some uh, tuning houses. You know, we went and saw the Zenitanis and the trusts and the trials and all of those sort of great joints, uh, Sea West, before... People had, you know, before they'd seen foreigners coming in there trying to talk to them about what it was that they actually did. So we really, really, really did some pioneering stuff. And I've really got to thank my hosts, 
uh, the major host being Terry at the time, Pastor Terry now, and uh, he took some time out and showed us around. And the more, the harder we worked at the, the wrecking yard, the scrap yard, scrap yard, the more we could actually do going out and looking at things. Because as soon as a container, the 20 footer, was packed full of goodness, car goodness to come back to Australia, we could actually go out, take days off, and start looking at stuff. So it was a really, really intoxicating time, and we brought this culture back to Australia and it's one that's, you know, many, many people since have tried to relive. But, you know, I can't help but think it got a little diluted. You know, back when we were going, the R34 GDR was still a thing. You could still buy it brand new from Nissan and people were doing car yards full of second hand. There were GTR specific yards, R32s, R33s, R34s. And they weren't going for very big money. 32s in particular were the equivalent back then of about a good one with some mods, a bit of tuning, some nice rims, brake upgrade, coilovers, coilover desk arm was, uh, you know, the equivalent of $9,000 Australian. And because they were much younger then than they are now, they weren't totally flogged out pieces of rubbish. So... There were some great buying opportunities, and I think that's why I bought my first GDR that way, my first R32 that I've, I've spoken about before. But there were stacks of these things. There were RPS 13s, you know, late model S13 stacked on top of each other, ready for the crusher. They even had the Type X taillights in them and that kind of thing. It's a, it's a kind of thing that would make you cry these days if you saw it, but that's just what it was back then. And we would buy cars to bring back to Australia that were actually in the stack sitting on top of the pile with the windows down, snow pouring into them, getting rained in, but because Japanese cars were pretty good quality compared to anything else we'd ever seen I mean that wasn't hard when you consider some of the stuff that was being made locally in Australia at the time, you know the interiors would clean up nice, the bodies didn't rust out, they were, they were such good things that they were quite easy to revive Unfortunately, though, in later years, people go to Japan now and they think it's pretty cool. And look, I haven't been for over a decade, so I, I shouldn't comment. But the car scene there is pretty weak now. They don't make, the Japanese don't make as much cool stuff as they used to. They don't set the world on fire with their cars. And hopefully that dip throughout the, you know, the, the 2010 to 2018 sort of era... Hopefully that dip's gone now. We're on a, another bit of an upswing for the Japanese car industry. And, you know, we see, we're seeing things like that little Toyota GR and, and other really cool, crazy cars that are going to hopefully revive what really is a stunning culture. And we're going to get back into it because the Japanese car industry really has become a little on the boring side. Well, look. That's it for this Epicast. What I want you to do, we're going to talk a lot more about Japan in the upcoming uh, future Epicast. I hope you find it interesting. If you do, I need you to send me your feedback to dtech, D-T-E-C-H, at senet.com.au because I have so many more stories to tell. It will actually blow your mind 
So we may, I'm, I'm going to take this weekend off, so there may not be a Sunday session, but we will be back soon. And thank you for listening to Range Anxiety.